Amen. Thanks, Hubert. King's kids, you guys can head on out. And do we have Spanish translation today? No Spanish translation today. I'll speak slowly. And I'll do my best uh, Grango interpretation as I go. How's everybody today? Good to see everyone. It's good to be here. You know, it's good to be in Hebrews chapter 13. It's good to make it out of chapter 12. And today we are going, who remembers the first chapter 11 is about faith, right? Chapter 12 was about hope, right? Chapter 13 is about love, 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 love. So yeah, we're, we're starting a new chapter here. This is chapter 13 of Hebrews. And if, for those of you that are just joining us, uh, we've been in Hebrews for probably, I don't know, many, many weeks. And we've, we've been taken through just an amazing picture of how it is that God now speaks to us in the new covenant. And that is through the power of the Holy Spirit, but through the arrival and the impact that his son made when he came, Jesus Christ, he now speaks no longer through the prophets, no longer through the old. He now speaks solely and exclusively through his son, Jesus Christ. If you want to know about God, who God is, what God likes, what God doesn't like, what God would do, what he would say, study Jesus Christ. He's fully God and he's fully man. And so he's, he's taken us through this. He's, the writer has also showed us what it means to believe in this message, not only to believe in Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done, but also to believe in what Jesus Christ is doing at the very present time of this writing, that they were writing it, but also, as we found too, it applies even to us right now. And that is taking us into that promised land, taking us into that new creation that began at the time when Jesus rose from the dead, that firstborn of that new creation, and now bringing and pushing forward and forth his kingdom. And so this writer takes us through the whole, I believe, the climax of the book in chapter 12, which is, hey, we are now at that new city. It's not that it's coming and we're going to get there. It's we're there right now. We're at the Mount Zion. We're at the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking when he's trying to communicate this very fact to you. And so now we get into from this, you know, a lot of warning, a lot of real intense theology, and now we sort of turn into chapter 13, which could be like a series of, of tidbits about Christianity, I guess you could say, but really with the common denominator uh, of love. And that's really what the theme is, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Not exhaustively uh, biblical love or anything like that, but in the context of, of how it is here. So with that said, I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we will, these are a little uh, choppy in terms of there's not, it doesn't seem on the surface that there's one consistent line of thought. But as we take a, a look, we, we can see some commonality. So verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 13 of Hebrews, let love of the brethren continue. It's right into love there. 
series of commands here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. You're going to see there's this Hebrew parallelism again in this writer's using it. He's contrasting two things, right? We see the love of the brethren. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this, some have entertained angels. And again, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Now he shifts gears here. Marriage, verse 4, it's to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Verse 5, a new topic. Make sure that your character is free (coughs) from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So what is the writer trying to teach us here? What is he doing? Why is he he's using this style? Obviously, it's a wrap up type of style. He's wrapping the letter up. And by no means are any of these um, commands or applications indicative of problems necessarily, uh, necessarily in these areas. In other words, He says, let love of the brethren continue. It's not necessarily true that maybe they were having problems in that church loving each other. These are general Christian um, uh, tidbits and obviously some really, really important fundamentals. When I first came here four years ago, I preached my first sermon out back. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, We have a beautiful oasis in the back, by the way. Uh, when it's, it's, and I think it is kind of clean and tidy. You could check it out when you leave over to the left if you haven't. But we, during uh, toward the tail end of COVID, <clears throat> we were having our services back there. And the first uh, message that I preached here was on Acts 2.42, which was about how to be a church, the basics of being a church, continuing in the apostles' doctrine, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. And I thought that was a very appropriate uh, thing to talk about because I look at those things as the absolute basics, and, and hopefully you, you, you would agree if you looked into it, of what it means to be a church. The apostles' teaching, the Word of God, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. These are foundations. If we don't have this, we don't have a church. If we're missing any of those elements to a, to a large extent, we're going to be in big trouble. Well, what our writer is doing here is he is going back to the basics. It's one of the most important things we can do in any area of life. I love the story of, uh, of, um, of, of uh, Vince Lombardi. And this is what I shared back four years ago when we talked about the basics, because I I love this story when he walked out. It was, it was actually um, in the 1960, right after the 1961 season, he had taken over uh, the Washington Redskins, and um, he went into the locker room. I'm sorry, uh, uh, Packers. And he went into the locker room, and he said, ladies and, well, he didn't say ladies. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. This is a football. And obviously he had the football. And Vince Lombardi was known for doing that at the beginning of every training camp. He would literally take take it down and reduce it to the ridiculous. What the basics are. 
You have to run, you have to tackle, you have to throw, and you have to block. And he would run these people through to the point where they would laugh and say, I think we got it this time. But he was so meticulous. And the, the amazing thing is that the, after that season, he never had a losing record. He was one of the most winningest coaches ever. And um, it was all, I believe, because of his leadership style. And so a good leader will always go back to the basics and will stick to the basics. And so when we are, it's no different in our Christian life. We have to focus on the basics in our Christian life. And the number one basic that we could ever think about as a Christian is love. And he starts off the very first verse, let the love of the brethren continue. Now, why did he say this again? I believe it was just a tidbit. But again, we're dealing with a group of people that were defecting back to the Old Testament system. They were apostatizing. They were rejecting Jesus Christ. There was contentions. And so it's not a wonder that this pastor says, listen, first and foremost, before I let you guys go, love each other. Let the love of the brethren, okay, and the sisterhood continue. And it had to be there. Otherwise, they would not be a church. There are several different aspects of love in the New Testament. We have several different ideas in our mind right now, probably, about love in our culture. Our culture will tell you love is about what? Feeling. If I love something, it's all because my body told me I love it. If I love a person, it's all because of my heart told me I love them. See, the world starts with feeling. The Bible starts love with truth. That's where God gets his definition of love. We see eros and erotic love in the scriptures. That's more of a sexual love. We see storge, which is a family love. Family, father, son, uh, parent, child, family members. That would be storge. And then we have the most powerful word for love in the Bible, which is used only in the New Testament, and that is agape or agape love. And that means unconditional love. That means loving when that person doesn't deserve to be loved. And that's the type of love that God calls every Christian to. That's foundational. Because that's the love that Christ modeled for us. But here in this passage, he's talking about presupposing the agape love. And he's talking about Philadelphia or phileo love which is a brotherly love. It's almost a, a, play, a, a redundancy here. Let the love of the brethren continue, right? So he's almost saying, let the Philadelphia of the Philadelphia continue, right? He's basically saying that we are to love our brethren and our sisters with a love as if they are somebody that we look at as just as important as somebody who's a part of our family, and so this is something that we must take as a very serious admonition because this is something that could easily grow cold over time. I found in my experience as a Christian that my love typically grows cold in proportion to the amount of theology I think I know. My love will typically go cold because, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the more that I'm doing on the outside for God, 
the more God is pleased with me. Now, don't get me wrong. God is pleased when we do good things. But he's not rewarding me for that. Okay? This is something that I have to look at. When I have a brother or sister in front of me, God wants me to look through the lens of Christ at those people. The the best picture of this type of love, this brotherly love that we look at at our brothers and sisters is, I, and a lot of times pastors don't like to talk about this because it's, it's a tough passage to go through because if you, when you teach through Acts chapter 2, okay, right after the, the scripture I just quoted, we see a, a communal living in the book of Acts. You remember that? Where it says in Acts 2, 44 to 45, all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and their possessions. But here's the key. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so this isn't about communism. This is about heart work. They were giving out of the goodness of their heart. And so to have brotherly love for each other, we need to know each other. Right? I don't know how many of us here, don't, you don't have to do it, but if you looked around, you would say, well, I don't know really about if that, I don't even know that person's last name. Or I don't even know what town that person lives in. You know, and say, and I'm just as guilty of it. I'm preaching to myself as well. And so this is something that, um, although we are fantastic at this, when we have visitors come here, usually the first thing that people tell me after they tell me how great the preaching was, was that the love that they felt when they came in here. And that's what's supposed to happen when new people come in. But more importantly, if a believer comes in here, or a believer, a a brother or sister in the Lord, however you want to say it, that person should feel it just as much. And so this is our identity badge. Okay, faith is a is our identity badge is one of our identity badges as well theologically, right? That's what that's what justifies us. When we're justified by faith, we're we're now in the covenant. Okay, so this also this aspect of biblical love is also something that should be our identity badge. That means I'm not saying you shouldn't preach the gospel. I'm saying that you should preach the gospel, but you should also live the gospel. And when people meet you as a Christian, they should see that badge coming out, that identity badge of love. John 15, 12 to 3. I'm sorry, John. I always say these addresses wrong. John 15, uh, verses 12 to 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I loved you. Greater love has no one uh, has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. This one's even better. John thirteen thirty four to thirty five. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's the having the love. Okay. And again, this is. Uh, and we were talking about this before at Sunday Bible study, that Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's about changing the heart of the person. It says, greater love that, uh, has no one than this, that one lays life down for his friends. Yes, that's an action. 
But Jesus first wants us to have love in our heart for one another. And so how do we get love? Well, how do we get holy? Do we get holy by doing holy things? Do we get love by doing lovely things? No, we get holy by spending time with the Holy One. We get holy by being in the presence of Almighty God through Jesus Christ. We become loving by meditating on the love that Jesus Christ has for us and by being in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because when you're in his presence, like Zacchaeus, from the, from the branch to the ground, you change. And so God wants us to have that, change, that, light, that selfless, selfless love that Christ had, selfless, life-giving love that Christ had. He laid down his life for his brethren. And that's an admonition that we could talk about over and over and over again. And so obviously to do this, some of the practical things here, one of the things that popped out in my mind is how easy it is for us as Christians to have not just disagreements, because disagreements are actually good within, with, with brothers, right? Usually when you have a relationship with somebody, it gets really good after you've worked out your first couple disagreements, because then you get to know them, you, the trust factor's there, you see some glimpses of their heart and things like that. So, you know, don't be worried about so much uh, of having the disagreements. It's having the, unrec- it's having the unresolved disagreements that can really cause problems. And so I encourage you, again, I don't know about any disagreement that's going on in this church right now, before the Lord, um, necessarily, but anybody here anyway, because I'm not trying to put, point fingers, but if you don't have, if you, it's saying you have to be best friends, but if there's unreconciled relationships between you and somebody else that's especially a believer, you should reconcile that. That's the badge. That's the love that Christ is saying here. Okay, we want to have that, that self, selfless love that we give out. And there's nothing that shows that better than forgiveness. Okay, and reconciliation. So the second part, sort of love, though, we see love for the brethren, okay? And, and now we, ought, when we move on here and we see do not neglect, so remember, to show hospitality to strangers. By this, people have entertained angels without knowing it. So what's he talking, who's he talking about there? Exactly, Abraham. Right, so Abraham had a couple of angels that were visiting him, right? Lot as well. Gideon and Judges, so he's probably alluding to that. But the context to this passage is the false teachers that were coming around. And they were really preying on Christians. And so they were looking for homes where there were Christian families and Christian churches that were meeting. And these Judaizers and Gnostics and whoever else would go in there and they would start to confuse the Christians. Because again, they didn't have commentaries and Bibles and all this stuff. So they were just getting the, the word from the apostles or, or whoever it was passed down to or the letters that were going around. And so there were people that were trying to deceive them. So what did people do? Well, they just stopped talking to people. I'm not going to talk to anyone now. So the writer's saying, don't do that. You know, start, you know, keep the love going. Show that hospitality. You got nothing to lose. Okay, we could see how that happens, right? We start to say, oh, I'm not doing it anymore, right? I, I remember being a kid um, in, in the 70s, and my dad used to pick hitchhikers up all the time. 
it was just like a regular thing. I mean, some of you guys that are uh, that are of that age could remember that it was, you know, I remember in the 70s and 80s, it started to get a little weird. But it was just like a normal thing. Hey, come on in, jump in and get the, like now we don't do any of that. Right. Don't do that. Don't go and leave here and pick up a hitchhiker. Pastor Pat said, to pick, you know, it was so, so loved in hospitality to strangers, right? And then you, you call me with a ransom, I'm going to say I don't know you. Just kidding. So I'll send Wayne, he's our treasurer. So, um, no, but so we, we, we really have to, we have to check ourselves with that. And, and the thing is here is like, here's, here's the heart behind this here, is that God is, God has a heart for the downtrodden. God has a heart for the lonely. God has a heart for those people that are, are by themselves, that are wandering through the wilderness. So this is the consistency that the author is saying here is make sure that you're consistent in all areas of your life with this love. Okay, it's not just, it's easy to love the brethren, but how about loving some strangers as well? How about in verse three, remembering the prisoners, let's have some love for them, although in prison, as though in prison with them. And then he, he contrasts that or, or parallels that with those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the human body. Psalm 147.3, God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Luke 4.18 the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus speaking here. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You know, prison is... I, I, when, I, when I look at prisons, when I first became a Christian, prison ministry was one of the number one things I wanted to do. Because I was very thankful I wasn't in prison and I was just like, you know, I, I, that was the first thing I wanted to do when I wanted to get into ministry was go into this place that I was terrified of ever being at. And that's one of my biggest fears is being locked up, right? It would be, it would be absolutely crazy. But I thought about throughout my life, and I think probably most of you could think about this too, is that how many times in your life did you almost go to prison for a long time? Seriously. Maybe some of you are like, well, I never did anything. I doubt that. Maybe it was a night you were driving, you had too much to drink, you almost got into an accident, and you just went home and nothing happened. And what happened if you had hit that person in the car and that person ended up getting hurt? And, that, and that, this happens all the time. You know, every one of us were this close. And, and it's so we have this tendency to look at prisoners like, oh, wow, they really, really did it. You know, they really went off the deep end. No, no, they just got caught or they were just unfortunate. We all deserve that one way or the other. I could almost put my life on it. And so, again, God's heart is for us to love these people, not just the ones that are Christians either. Not just the Christians. And, and prison is an amazing outreach. I, you know, just thinking about it here, we have so many, we have county prisons here. We have state prisons in New Jersey. We have so many, I would love for somebody to say, hey, let's, let's get in there. And, and, and let's, we have one literally right down the street here on Center Street, the county prison, which is really, which is there. So let's remember that. It's just something I just want to throw out. It's in the scriptures. We need to pray for that. You know, we had Phil Reardon here about a year ago, who was a man who was sent to prison. 
uh, for murder, and he did uh, for 30 years or something like that, and was converted in prison. Um, and how he was converted was great. If you, if you go to our YouTube channel, you could watch his testimony. I, I recommend that you do that. And I don't remember exactly the details. I should have watched it again. But when he first got into the holding cell, when, his, when he was at his absolute worst, was going out of his mind, somebody had passed a note through whatever pathway they do, they, they would do through the, through the jail cells and through the holes and the walls and all that other stuff. And the note said something to the effect of, do you know Jesus? And, the, and he started to witness to him. And then eventually uh, Phil asked for a Bible, ended up getting saved, having a great prison ministry, and now impacting many people out here. So again, I wanted to throw it out there. Where could we do, what could we do as a church uh, to, 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 to fill this gap? You know, it's convicting in Matthew 20, uh, 25, Jesus says that, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. This is verse 34 to 37. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you visited me, naked and you clothed me, sick, you visited. I was in prison and you came to me. And you know how it goes after that. He says, Lord, when did we do all these things? He says, when you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. And it's, then he flips it. When you didn't do it, you, did, you didn't do it to me as well, too. The, the next uh, admonition here is verse 4, and that is marriage. And I'll probably spend a little bit more time on this. Love for marriage. So marriage in and of itself has the concept of love baked into it, obviously. It says marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So this institution of marriage, first of all, what does it mean to honor something? What does it mean to honor? I know sometimes somebody says, great job, you know, is go give glory to God, you know. Bible says to give honor where honors do. Right. And that could mean to people as well. But honor means to to adhere to what is right or to a conventional standard of conduct. High respect, great esteem. Uh, The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery, is put into place for the protection and the preservation of this. um, I would say covenant, I guess the best way to put it, that God has invented and created. And we are to put that and we are to um, hold that up and put that up in great esteem. And God gives us the seventh commandment to protect that. And we know that it's do not commit adultery. But Jesus also said that if you look with lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. But also the opposite of that commandment of opposite of committing adultery is just the very opposite of that would be to what? To preserve, to honor, and to have respect, and to build up the concept of marriage. And why does God put such a high emphasis on this? Well, in the Bible, in Ephesians 5, 31-32, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is talking about marriage, referring back to Adam and Eve when it was invented. He said, this mystery is great, but I am speaking in reference to Christ and the church. 
So God literally, in his ultimate wisdom, has created this covenant of marriage, okay, or institution, if you want to call it that. I don't like calling it that. It's a covenant. It's a contract between two people before God. And God has, God has created this so that way we can look and get just a little bit of a glimpse in what it means to be one and have unity with Christ our Lord, the one whom we love as a groom, as a wife would love a groom, that the bride lays her life down for the church. Why, though? Why did the church do that? The church didn't want to do that. The church didn't even want to give, give Christ the time of day. But what happened first? Christ laid his life down for his wife, his bride, his church. And then as an, as a, as an impulse, obviously, theologically, we have the Holy Spirit, we have all that stuff, but conceptually here we see the laying down of Christ and the response of the church. To, 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 to show this beautiful picture of intimacy that when we come to God and we say, Lord, I want to know you, he says, know me through my son. And we come into this relationship with Jesus. It's like marriage. And God has given us this covenant of marriage to, to look at it. And, and he wants us to hold this up in high honor. Not just our wives and our husbands, although once in a while you should do that. But the actual concept and sanctity of marriage needs to be held up and protected. Because marriage is the core and the key of this society. And once we start to divide the family and we start to divide up marriage and we start to push it apart, and then what ends up happening is the fabric of society starts to pull apart. And this is where we get our model for the church as well. And so what, what has ended up happening in our culture is that people are doing the exact opposite of honoring marriage. They're dishonoring it. They're dishonoring it by redefining it, making it man and man or woman and woman or man and dog or woman and whatever. And they've just, it's just become a big, gigantic mess. What do we do as Christians? Oh, well, you know, as long as they don't mess up my ability to go to church. No, this is God's world. Marriage is part of this creation. It's the core of this creation. So we need to stand up for it. And we don't acknowledge anything outside of what the Bible calls marriage. It's invalid. And so that would be one way to honor the marriage bed. Right? Honor, honor marriage as a, as, a, as a concept. But it also talks here, too, about the bed being make sure that it's not defiled. And that takes it a level deeper now, right? Now we're looking and we're saying, okay, honor marriage, but now we have husband and wife here, too. And that place where they do come together to show the perfect picture of Christ in the church, that can't be messed around with either. That has to be held in high honor. And so that is incredibly important because when you look at this word undefiled, it means unsoiled, free from that which the nature of the thing is deformed or debased. When you defile the marriage bed, you make marriage deformed 
and debased and soiled. You know, soiled. And so this is a critically important thing for the Lord for us to understand this. As a matter of fact, when in the book of Acts in chapter 15, when they were dealing with this about what to do with the Gentiles and how do we get the Jews and Gentiles to get along, rather than saying have to, they have to obey the law, they have to get circumcised, one of the few things they said, just have them do this, was not mess around with lust, fornication, and all that, because they knew that the Jews would, ex, would be completely separate from them if they were doing that. And so they made sure they put that out there. You know, I say a lot of times, and we've said this a couple times today, that this isn't about behavior modification. But sometimes, especially if you're caught up in one of these sins, then you, you need to modify your behavior. You need to kick yourself in you know where and get yourself out of this. And so there is a time where you got to grab the, the wrench and start to work. I'm talking about when we're walking in grace with Christ. and all, It's not about behavior. It's not about changing all these behaviors and then I'm going to be better. But if you're dealing in this area of adultery and you are, you're, you're, you're committing adultery against your spouse, you are soiling your marriage bed. And it goes even a, le- even goes a, a step further. And that is obviously, and I don't know how these kids do, do this with, these, with the images that are readily available on the phone if you think that you're getting away scot-free by looking at images on your phone, ladies and men, you're not. You're doing irrevocable damage to, if you don't, to your spouse and also to your future spouse. And here's why. Because you see, when you look and you go beyond and you go into this world of your phone or computer or whatever it is, and you start to look at these images, what ends up happening is you end up, like I have to tell you this, you end up becoming stimulated. And this starts to create pathways, neural pathways in your brain that weren't there before. And those pathways that are created through this false fantasy of an image what that does, your brain doesn't know the difference. It thinks it's real, and it starts to create this high, 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 high standard for you to please those neuro- neurotransmitters. And you end up getting to the point where you just can't do it anymore. And so you continue to try and try and try, and that's when it gets more debased and more dysfunctional as you go. And then the worst of it is, and this is how it hurts your future spouse, is because when you look at the real thing, when you look at your husband or your wife, they're going to do absolutely nothing for you. It's a completely different network. So now you're trying to take your, your, your wife or your husband and create something that was created by this artificial network of fantasy. It can't even compete with it. And so what we end up doing is we end up trashing our, our own thinking, oh, well, I'm going to get married and all my lust problems are going to go. No, they're not. Your marriage problems are just going to begin because you're creating this false world that your body can never, your mind can never live up to. And so you have to, cut, you have to kill that. You have to take that to the Lord and you have to destroy it. Because then when you do get married, you're not going to have any interest or not even, it's going to pale in comparison into what it was. And so there's two words here. There's obviously fornication, which is the word porno. 
in the Greek, and adulterer. So he's saying both. Okay, and again, I'm not going to say, obviously, this, is, this goes for every type of sex, okay? Straight, homosexual, whatever you want to say. It's fornication. Okay, it's, I'm not talking about gay marriage or anything like that. It's fornication, whatever it is. If it's not the physical act, you're doing it here, it's fornication. So you have to turn from that and repent. That's what's soiling this. And secondly, God's very... I mean, when these sins hit heaven, they seem to create more problems than anything else. Fornication and adultery. And that's why I think God comes so close, so strong in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, Revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So again, take that sin to the, to the Lord. Bring it to him. He knows about it. Turn from it and make the whatever you got to do in your life to make sure that that sin goes away, you have to do it. And if you can't, you need to talk to somebody about it. And so this is a, one of the biggies, right? Sexual sin. The second biggie is the next thing, right? And so what destroys people? Power, sex, and money. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, make sure that your character is free. Again, he's talking about love here, but the love of money. Being content with what you have. And I love this because the writer didn't have to go any further right there. God, you didn't have to go any further, right? All the Bible says, right? How many times is the, I think it says 365 times, right? Do not fear. Somebody said that one for every day of the week or, or every day of the year. It's amazing. God puts it in here. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so this is, he's telling, he's going out of his way to say, what are you worried about? And again, I'm not downplaying this. Money problems can stress you out. They can stress you out. But it's the money problems are one thing. You can get through them fine. But if you love money, you are going to be in bad shape. How do we become free from the love of money is very, very difficult to overcome. It's not going to go away by itself. There needs to be very deliberate action that needs to be taken to get rid of the love of money. The love of money, the reason why it's so difficult to get to be eliminated is because it's usually tied to a great insecurity. It's usually tied to some sort of fear or some sort of desired approval. But I think more than anything, for me anyway, it's fear. Okay, when it comes to money, because I'm always like, am I going to have enough to pay whatever? Like, is the fear of, am I going to have enough? Right? But then there's also the fear of not getting money. Well, if, I don't, if I don't look like I make this amount of money, 
then what are people going to think about who I am, about my, my worth, about my value, about what I can contribute to society? And so these are things that you have to look at. So if you have heard from people, hey, you got a problem with money, you should take it serious if you heard it more than once, right? From your wife a day. No. You should, you should take it serious, okay, and, and, and really figure it out. So how, how do you do that? Well, the first thing is, is that we talked before, you got to get underneath what, that, what it is. So if it's the love of money, that's not really the sin, right? So the love of money is what? It's a root of all sorts of evil. So you have to figure out where is that going down? What's the root going to? The sin under the sin. Under that sin, under that sin, under that sin. Pull it all up and deal with that. When you find the hot button, you'll know it. And so you gotta, you got to find the sin under the sin. And you also have to identify the mistruths that you believe about money. That's causing you to love it. Number, some of the main ones are enough of it will make you content with life. So if I have, like, I'm really not content in my life, but the whole reason is because I don't have enough money. Because I have a lot of bills, and I have a lot of needs, and I have a big family, and I have a big mortgage. And if I get enough money and I pay all that stuff, I'm going to be okay, and life is going to be all right. That's a lie. Are you, are you willing to, to understand that that's a lie? If you're like me, it may take you 24, 25 years to figure it out. I just went through it, so now I'm telling you it's a lie, okay? Let it go. That's a mistruth, okay? It will not make you content. It will make you want more money. Or it will make you worry about the money that you have. Or it will make you question whether or not you deserve this money. Or it will make, and you just keep going on and on and on because we got to get that foundation right, which I'm going to talk to you about. The other thing, too, is, you know, sort of the same thing. It'll make me content. It will make me a true success because money equals success. If somebody, if I say to you, hey, I have a friend of mine, he is extremely, extremely successful. And then he pulled up and his car was broken down and he barely had any clothes on. And you'd say, well, what? I'm like, he's the most successful guy I know. You know, he's been married for 55 years. <laughs> you know, that's success. Oh, well, I was expecting something else. What's he do for a living? Well, I don't even know. That has nothing to do with it. That has nothing to do with your success. But we, in our world, we, that's everything, right? And so we have to get rid of that. Un- we got to go down to that untruth. And then there's other ones too. I'm not going to get the right spouse if I don't have enough money. I need to have that picture to attract the right person. No, because if you work to gain, you'll have to work to maintain. Be yourself. So a couple ways to get rid of this love of money, obviously dig down, try to find that, that sin under the sin, but then try to manage the actual problems that you're having with it. Maybe you're thinking about it a lot. Maybe you're not giving enough of it away. Are you giving back to your church? Are you here, if you guys are here every week, I don't talk about money. I don't think I've ever talked about it maybe three, four times. So I'm just saying, but are you? Because if you're not giving, guess what? You, you're, you're, that's probably eating away at you. It's probably bothering you. God's probably convicting you. And you're probably get, not giving because you're holding on even more tight to that money that you think you're going to lose or you don't have. Start to give a little bit. 
Okay? Have somebody keep you accountable. And I'm not doubting your, your, your ability to manage your money. I'm talking about keeping you accountable with this sin of love, of the excessive love and desire for money. But what's the first page? Well, obviously, we have to understand that, first of all, again, I'll give you these things that you've heard a million times before. So what I'm about to say is not going to help you at all. But you've heard it. It's all God's money. Okay, it's all it's not mine. I got to be a good steward of my money. I got to do all that stuff. Yes, you got to do all that. That's really important to do. If you prioritize and say to yourself, I am going to put God first in my life and I'm going to put him a front of the money and I'm going to trust him in my money and financial situation. God's going to bring you right back here and he's going to say, I'll never desert you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm your helper. Don't be afraid. What's man going to do to you? What's bill collectors going to do to you? That's what we think, right? Well, I'm late on the bill and all of a sudden we just picture all the dark coats coming up to the house. You are late on your bill. No, listen, it's not going to trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. That's what this is all about. Love God, number one. Put him number one, and you won't have this obsession with money. It'll start to go away little by little. Right? Respect and honor the marriage bed. Respect and honor and understand that, that this is about um, Christ in the church. Right? Dig, dig under that sin. Get rid of any hint of sexual immorality, as Paul says. Any hint, even a hint of it. Get rid of it, because then you extinguish it at the root. It's got nowhere to build. Get rid of it. And then, of course, the practical love. Remember the prisoners. Remember the ill-treated. Remember the strangers. And most important, remember the brethren. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. For your admonition on love and sex and money. Lord, I pray over these things, God. These are extremely difficult things, Lord. Please be with us, God. We know, Lord Jesus, that you were the one that overcame all and that you laid down your life for the sins of every single person that believes in you, Lord. And that you, Lord, are the biggest uh, example of love that we could even think of. So we have to come to you for the, as the source of this love, of this ability to see our, our, our wives and our husbands the way we need to, to see money and put it in its right place. And so, Lord, we, we just give you first place right now. We, just, we ask and we just lay this all before you in Jesus' name. Amen.